0: The following is with Patrick Watts, who is one hell of an interesting fella. Uh, The more and more we talked, both before and after the interview, it became really clear how almost exactly overlapping our interests are. So needless to say, um, uh, this was a really fun episode to record. The podcast is about the themes from his debut book, The End of the American Empire. It's just came out in the US and UK markets, so please do not hesitate for one second. Go out and go and get it. The Amazon link is in this podcast description, and this is a self-published book from Patrick. So my hope is is that the Curious Worldview audience will really make a difference in moving the needle here. Uh, Refer to the timestamps for all the topics discussed. Pump that good juice into the algorithm, which comes in the form of five stars a five-star review that's either on uh, Spotify or on Apple and also I don't know if you saw but in addition to this show uh, my interview with Bill Browder last week he comments on the Vowney in our interview just days before the sad news that came in the last few days so uh, very timely topical check out that interview as well and with absolutely no further ado here's the great and powerful Patrick Watts
1: yeah it's it's insane isn't it you've got How? 300 million people and the best two choices are both aging both showing signs of mental decline um i think it's it's bizarre it's i think elon musk suggested didn't he that there should be a uh, you know a cap on the age age limit of office and i I kind of agree with that. Gordon Brown, our ex prime minister, made quite a funny quote the other day where he said, "I'm mm-hmm. so in mean, that strange period where I'm too old to be a British prime minister, but too young to be a US, China, or Russian leader." <laughs> I thought it was quite <laughs> funny.
0: You speculate in the book as to how they got to this position.
1: Yeah, well, I think in general both parties have kind of. They've shown a bit of a disregard and a denigration of, of the democratic process and democracy as a whole. I think if you go all the way back to, you know, Bush and Gore um, in Florida, you know, and kind of the, the early declaration of victory. And that, that was, I think, the first kind of chink in the armor of the American democratic system. Um, and then, you know, I talk a lot about the idea of succession legitimacy and that being a massive thing, you know, especially in democracy, you have to maintain the succession legitimacy. And at the moment, there is there is none. And I think it's not just the obvious you know, Trump literally trying to steal an election last time. That is the end, or the current end point of this succession. You look at you know Bernie Sanders being kind of screwed out of the nomination for the uh, for the Democrats, uh, for, you know, because they wanted to anoint Hillary Clinton. Then you had Hillary Clinton, you know, losing that election because she was an unpopular candidate. And then instead of kind of a bit of soul searching and a come to Jesus moment, the Democrats just you know blamed Russia. And obviously there was Russian interference, but that was not the sole reason why why she lost. So they didn't make the changes that they required. And they, you know, again, chipped away at the legitimacy of, of the president, like him or not. Um, and also, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? If you look at the statistics of how many of the recent presidents have won, um, even though they've lost the, the popular vote. So, you know, there's so many different parts of that system that just don't seem to work.
0: Is there a more uh, uh, damning data point as to a failing democracy than that?
1: Well, it's bizarre isn't it because on the on the very face of it you look at it and say well hang on how many people voted for who you know it should be as simple as that and i think i kind of speculate about what different alternatives are there because obviously you know no one's perfect in the uk we you know we have the first past the post system which means that my vote is worth you know differently to somebody else's vote in the country um other states and you know, i think italy they have a, a way of just kind of making up votes so that you don't kind of have. Uh, minority governments so there's there's no kind of perfect situation but yeah i I think currently the actual legitimacy of the of the u.s kind of model is is in in a bit of a shambles and i don't see Mm. any result that i can forecast of this election that's going to change that
0: from a cultural or even social perspective um do you have an explanation for how their two options are both these shocking horrible unlikable people
1: I think the problem is there's um, there's a really good book by a chap called Matt Taibbi uh, called Hate Inc. and I read that about maybe about seven or eight years ago, and essentially that posits that after the after the Cold War, um, the US was you know global hyperpower. There was essentially empire. There was no real challenger. You had the the war on terror, and you had kind of some disastrous um, occurrences there. Um, but in terms of a, you know, a direct challenger, there was nobody for the US to root against. So, you know, in in absence of that, especially after the conclusion of the war on terror kind of proper, you know, they the the media essentially whipped up these partisan feuds to essentially fight each other. So you've got this situation where everything is completely hyper partisan. Um, and that has created the conditions where a, a candidate like Donald Trump can emerge. Um, he is just a symptom of the of the situation. You know, the. The people that are voting for him, especially the first time round, I don't think the majority of them voted for him because they like his character. They also probably don't like many of his policies, but they just feel completely ignored by the alternative. And the alternative was, you know, the Democrats who don't represent them whatsoever. Uh, for what it's worth, I actually think, you know, if Joe Biden had decided to quit or to say that he was only going to be a one term president, he would have been remembered as one of their better presidents. Um uh, but unfortunately, he's been seen to be, you know, kind of forcing the issue and carrying on. And now, you know, he's incredibly unpopular. Um, and a kind of link to that is, unfortunately, the unpopularity ratings of, of uh, the VP Kamala Harris. I think if she was much more popular, I don't think he'd be running. It's not her, you know, it's not necessarily her fault. She's just not unpopular, isn't she? So I think it's, um, yeah, it's an impossible situation. Plus, the, well, the Republicans, for a start, that, that party is now, as the Donald Trump Jr.'s son said on uh, on the sixth of January. This is Donald Trump's party now. You know that was years ago, and it still stands. It still stands to reason.
0: Yeah, Joey B is eighty two years old. That's crazy. Surely yeah, right? you just want to retire, spend some time with the grandkids, play golf, <laughs> anything like it's, anything. You know, yeah, like, walks Write in the book. walks
1: in the country, like to get on the memoirs. Get get the presidential yeah. library up and running. But yeah, it's set um...
0: down some legit memoirs. I mean, the man's lived a hell of a life.
1: Yeah. And it's I think there's a part in the book where I kind of talk about, you know, is this kind of wise, wise old heads or just running out of options? And I think this it's, it's easy to kind of label uh, any criticism of either of those candidates as ageism, which I think is just so lazy because it's not ageist to say that somebody is probably too old to be doing a role like leading the free world. Um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want an 82 year old running your company, let alone let alone the country. And yeah, from
0: a, i don't want an 82 year old driving my car there,
1: i think um, joe rogan has a joke on that he says like you know just just ask the simple question would you let joe biden drive you home from the airport <laughs> and if the answer is no <laughs> then you shouldn't probably have yeah. him in charge so yeah i think it's um I, I think it's it's just really detrimental to where democracy is going in the us that, that they have this you know I, I thought it was bad when we had uh in the uk when we had to choose between you know boris johnson and jeremy corbyn um, mm. But you know, this is even worse.
0: Is the same hyperpartisanship that explains Trump explicable for Biden?
1: I think Biden is not necessarily the hyperpartisanship. I think it's somebody I can't remember who described the Democrats or the DNC anyway as a, a as a, an election racket. So essentially, just putting making sure that the the elite members of the of the party are insulated from challenge. So that they can, uh, you know, it's, it's your time, it's your time, Hillary, it's your time, Joe, you know, you're the safe pair of hands, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't necessarily think it's the hyper-partisanship that's created that. I think it's more the DNC wanting to kind of insulate and protect from any challenges that are too progressive. If you look at what they did to Bernie, you look at the reason that, you know, none of the actual genuinely progressive members of, of, of that Congress are actually anywhere near um, positions of, um, you know, challenging for, for the leadership. That's the problem. And there's there's an argument that if uh, Donald Trump wasn't running and it was a more establishment uh, kind of candidate for the Republicans, would the Democrat, would the DNC and you know members of that elite prefer prefer that person to win than say a Bernie Sanders or a uh, I don't know Illinois man or you know an AOC or someone truly progressive? Quite possibly, because <laughs> they're all kind of uh, you know everyone scratching each other's backs.
0: One of those candidates would scream hyperpartisanship, I think. Um... A little more loudly, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. And
0: because they're so divisive.
1: Yeah, I think the problem is every at the moment there is so much kind of division that every every candidate seems divisive for for whatever reason. And I also think people have forgotten that you don't necessarily have to agree with everything that a certain candidate says you're never going to it's not it's not possible the idea is you should agree with enough and agree with maybe the character traits and personality that make that person worth supporting
0: their overall worldview
1: yeah exactly rather than ah well there was that thing 15 years ago that i didn't like therefore i hate them therefore i'm not going to vote for them because all it does is it leads to this kind of cynicism that we have now where you know, people kind of become disengaged from the whole democratic process because they say, well, you know, they're all the same or what's the point? They're They're all crap or, you know, whatever. And it just means that you just completely shut down, you know, kind of any engagement with it. And I think kind of cynically, that served the uh, kind of the, olig- the oligarchy in the America- American system quite well because they don't want you to be particularly engaged. They don't want you to be, you know, following the money and looking at the bills and looking at actually kind of all the lobbying and like all the revolving doors, etc. They want you to just kind of get on with it and just vote one of one of them in each four years and kind of keep cracking on.
0: I interviewed Sam Leith, um recently. Uh, he wrote a book about rhetoric. He's a journalist for the Spectator, and he just made an observation there isn't any sort of point behind it but i did find it such a compelling observation um and that is that in the um modern american presidents since bush it has no since clinton it has swung very violently from a rhetoric um uh politician to an anti-rhetoric politician so starting with clinton smooth perfect rhetoric yeah everyone agrees charismatic good speaker who wins after him george (laughs) w bush yeah overwhelmingly considered bad rhetorician but in the bad rhetoric people trust him more because they don't think there's this slick salesman who's actually tricking them into something yeah who wins after george bush barack obama Yeah. the greatest rhetorician maybe still alive and then uh at, and, and he won because people acknowledge how good of a speaker he is we want a smart person leading the country, etc. Then by the time he's out, the worst anti-rhetorician <laughs> ever comes in, Donald Trump, Yeah, you know, who is just um, one of the things people loved about him. And they would openly say it, is that he speaks so plainly. He speaks exactly to me. He uses the words of the everyday man, etc. It, it's blatantly anti-rhetoric. And um, that's kind of when the trend breaks because Joe Biden came in over the top. I was going to say, that probably wasn't... Opposite rhetoric. Yeah. Exactly. Um, But now we're in a position where there's two anti-rhetoricians, and it's uh, almost, it feels like people say, we want someone smarter to pick it up. There's almost like a hunger for a great rhetorician. Uh, And so I don't know if there's an obvious point there, but it is an interesting observation.
1: I think so. And I think the the one that stands out to me in that list is obama and i think because it's not just the rhetoric it's more i genuinely think there was a a true desire for the type of hope and change that he was discussing and i think that did genuinely bring a lot of people together and it just gave people a hope that maybe they could you know be, be better but then i think the crash to come back down from that when they realized that actually if you look behind the scenes there are a lot of policies that weren't necessarily doing that um you look at kind of like the expansion of the drone warfare program for instance that's you know winning a, winning a, 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 a nobel peace prize and then being able to assassinate anyone on the planet those those two things don't really go hand in hand and i think once you come up from such a high lofty you know position of hope it's so easy to crash back down again and then you return to cynicism and who better to return you to cynicism than donald trump and um it's quite funny what you say about you know the way that he speaks there's a really good uh obviously i don't know if you watch south park but when they uh when they of started course. yeah they started running with uh obviously mr garrison or mrs garrison as as trump <laughs> yeah. and it was just like you know he'd say whatever he wants and then uh, all the crowd be like yeah he just say he's just saying like elect- says it like it is yeah he's just one of us and he's saying like don't vote for me i really don't want this fucking job and they're like yeah god you tell him. <laughs> that always made me laugh yeah legends.
0: <laughs> um so you write that you're a self-confessed Americanophile. Um, do you have any sense for where that came from to begin with?
1: I think, like kind of everybody who grew up. So I'm uh, approaching forty now. You know, growing up in those kind of formative years after the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, the Hollywood myth, as I call it, it was exploding everywhere. You know, everything Amer- America was about was big. It was brash. It was cool. It was, uh, you know, the, the well, I think, you know, the commercial empire, if you want to call it that, the commercial and cultural empire was so pervasive and, you know, every corner of the globe it seemed to touch. And even as a kid, I remember we always wanted to, we used to go uh, holidaying in France, you know, it was, it was lovely, but we kind of went every single year, got a little bit samey. We we're desperate to go to America, you know, just to check it out. And like when we finally got there, it's, it's so, everything's so oversized, this system, um, you know, kind of bowls you over a little bit. And I think from my time, done quite a few road trips around and driven thousands of miles um lots of different states kind of i just like meeting normal people and talking to them and seeing what they think and you know by and large everyone's been really super friendly i like the fact that compared to you know the uk british people could be quite cynical um europeans Mm -hmm. as well (laughs) um whereas you know in america everyone seems to be very open you know very open very friendly happy to chat you know invite you in and i that was I, i really kind of just enjoyed that and then the more that I would go back and the more that I would speak with people, the more that that resonated with me. And then once I started to scratch under the surface a little bit, I realized that, okay, well, would I potentially have got that same reaction if I, if I wasn't, you know, a a white person, maybe not, you know, and then I started to dig a little bit deeper and then that's kind of what led me to want to scratch the itch of just seeing exactly what was going on under the bonnet. And then kind of leading to this situation where I kind of described myself as a bit of a concerned friend, which is how I'm trying to write, you know, rather than, um, just being hypercritical and, you know, which is not going to help anybody. It's just, it's sometimes more easy to kind of uh, discuss with something what's going on when you don't have as much skin in the game. You know, I don't think I could have written this book if I was an American Democrat or Republican, because I think instantly one side, if you want to call them sides, is going to come out straight away. So that's, you know, that's rubbish. You're not patriot or whatever.
0: Uh, okay. So you mentioned um, the enthusiasm of the Americans was something that you found uh, particularly charming. I actually couldn't agree more. Um, you know, as someone who's lived in Europe for such a long time, there's such a snobby obnoxiousness about Americans, especially like, you know, American expats who I've dealt with in both Amsterdam and Stockholm. They, people just say, oh, they're obnoxious, they're always too loud and, you know, they, they always ask too many questions and stuff, which is all true and Americans could use a heavy dose of um, social awareness but the enthusiasm that underwrites it all—it it forgives everything because isn't it? there's such a lust for life there. And um...
1: yeah, I, I agree. I think it's infectious, and I, I guess there's a there's a run. I had a friend move over from the states uh, to London recently, and she was she was asking me why uh, whether it was true that people thought that Americans were really loud on the tube. Uh, and I was saying, well, know, yeah, the reality is, yes, 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 we do because you kind of are. But in a way, like like you say you compare that to a you know london everyone look at your feet uh france you know don't even dare ask me a question in paris you try to put you know try to speak some french and they're going to look at you blankly and speak english back to you because they they don't rate your french so you know i always quite quite enjoyed the american uh you know it is a it is a brashness and i think they could definitely do with a bit of self-awareness on the whole because you know, they are, their influence is oversized everywhere on the globe. And it's sometimes kind of mm-hmm. realizing that. And again, we kind of spoke off- offline about, you know, that kind of litany of sins that I've laid out pretty dramatically in the early chapter of the book. I think that's important. I think it's important to understand what's happened, you know, in the past for your country and happened in your name so that you can learn from it and be better.
0: The book makes a um, a really clear attempt to emphasize that you're talking about the American empire versus the American state. Uh, Why the emphasis on empire?
1: I think if you're going to examine what uh, parallels are kind of evident, you know, throughout history, the best way to examine that is through clear eyed realistic lens. So hiding from the fact that there is an empire present is not going to allow you to see all the parallels and make the most of them. And the reality is that, It it is imperial, you know. know, Ever since the end of the Second World War, when the British Empire declined, you know, the Bretton Woods Conference creating the IMF and the World Bank, installing the dollar as a reserve currency, you know, that started this kind of U.S.-led financial global system. So that meant that every kind of aspect of the world was touched by what America did. Then, you know, you build in kind of the military dominance, the military superiority. You know, the UK used to have a a two-power standard. the in the british empire days which meant that the uk would spend more than twice the two next leading powers combined the us has essentially an unwritten rule but it's a 10 power standard so they spend more military military than the next 10 combined and they spend so that's about 800 billion big stat and the the, that's 800 billion that's the chinese is 200 billion so you know there's that's far and away you know greater power than any empire has had in history I talked talk quickly about the drone program previously, but, you know, if you'd have said to Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan, listen, you can kill anybody you want anytime you want, you know, that power is unmatched. So I think it's important to understand that. And that's before you think about, you know, the, uh, yeah, the permutations of having Coca-Cola and McDonald's and everything, you know, it's just the entire culture has expanded through globalization, which has been obviously it's retreating now. But it's kind of taken over every aspect of the globe. So I don't think you can apply parallels from, you know, why did the Aztecs collapse? Why did the British collapse? Why did the Mongols collapse? And how what can we learn from that if you don't first say, well, hang on, you know, that this that is an empire here. We need to understand that and learn from it rather than saying, no, 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 we're we're benign. We're just a state. We're just getting on with it. They hate us for our freedoms. All of that, you know, that rhetoric.
0: Maybe you could make a very explicit um, distinction between what is an empire, what is a state.
1: Yeah, I think a state is a... Well, a nation state is obviously controlling within its own borders. It doesn't have the the reach or the ability to act unilaterally, essentially without recourse. And that is what the the, American, the, the modern American system has and has been able to do for the last... 30 odd years so i think that is the difference there might not be someone well you could argue as well that the president has quasi-imperial powers with the ability of to use executive orders which have been in the increase recently uh to able to be able to kind of obviate the requirement for um you know the checks and balances um so i think there's a there's an imperial element there as well um but yeah I d- if you compare it to any other nation on earth for over the last 30 years it has behaved in a completely different way because of the power disparity militarily, financially, you know, economically, and you know just the the control of every other aspect of our lives. So that, I think that's why it's, it's key
0: to address. Alrighty, that. alrighty, alrighty. So if you want to hear the rest of this podcast, I mean, we're not even halfway into it. Patrick goes on to give behind the scenes of self publishing. He talks about. Uh, John Perkins and Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He gives a really interesting scorecard for how uh, great empires of history have fallen. And then, of course, draws parallels and distinctions to the current American empire. Some insane statistics which exacerbate the overall point of American decline. And then uh, Patrick gets into... Uh, a little bit about what the collapse might look like. And he gives a fantastic response to the role of serendipity in his own life. So there is still so much more in this interview. And um, if this is your first time here, the reason why I've stopped it is because my primary podcast is called A Curious Worldview. I post on this feed here, those shows of a geopolitical nature, but the the full podcast is on my primary show, A Curious Worldview. So, it obviously, it costs you nothing to go to it. It's just me pointing towards a different feed. So, it's the top link in this description. Please follow it, and it will take you directly to the full, almost two-hour podcast that Patrick and I did there. So, if you've enjoyed it so far, I implore you to check it out. And with absolutely nothing else from me, I'll see you over at A Curious Worldview.